Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's we're getting I mean, so many people started August 14th back to school and some even like the week before that. No, I Um, mean, I had clients. I had schools that started back very beginning of August and then some that don't go back until the very beginning of September. So we are all over the place, but we are in it now. We are in back to school mode, which is exactly crazy because I feel like this summer just flew by. Yeah, I, I, slow and fast all at the same time, <laughs> as, yeah. as probably yeah. many of our listeners can attest to with, with having kiddos at home. And for those of you still, you know, working from home, it is an unending juggling act. There's no other way to describe it, but a juggling yeah. act. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as every year, we love to start the school year off with ways that we can help our kiddos and our schools start the school year off as best we can, whether it's educating parents, educating schools on how we can make more inclusive and safer places and spaces in our schools for kiddos. So we're really excited about our guest today. Yeah, Nadia Bennett, we are so excited to have you on. I think one of the ways in which people can have, you know, the buzzword of safe space and things like that is really to acknowledge, you know, what the biases are. And so Nadia, thank you for coming on and and helping us have this conversation and really get, you know, people to be thinking that's what we want to do. (laughs) We're starting the conversation. um, And we're hoping that people, you know, can can see it through. Um, So Nadia, can you give our listeners a little bit of your background? Sure, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Um, Thank you for having me. I am currently a school turnaround strategist. I work with K-12 schools to develop leaders, foster a culture of inclusion, equitable achievement, and create anti-racist school environments. I do that as the founder and CEO of When Brown Girls Lead. Um, I believe very strongly that when more Black and Brown educators are given the opportunity to lead, students and school communities Mm -hmm. evolve. Um, Prior to this work, I was an executive director of schools, a high school principal, a high school assistant principal, and a high school teacher. So I have done all the things instruction in in the K-12, and I did that in a turnaround environment. In the districts that I worked in, I was on a team of turnaround educators, so uh, obviously developed a very specific skill set in that work. Incredible. And for you to be able to be in it, right? Uh, you know, 15 plus years of, of a career kind of boots on the ground. What led you really to think about, okay, when I create, you know, when Brown Girls Lead, what was the driving force? Obviously, for children to see themselves in their leaders, right? And what else were kind of the thought process behind it? Yeah, great question. So a few things led me to this work. In my 15 years of leading schools and the the schools that I led, the majority of the young people were people of color. Mm -hmm. And I was a very skilled leader. Um, I accomplished a lot of things, but I never felt psychologically safe. 
Mm-hmm. And that came as a result of being a you know triple marginalized black um, as well as excuse me double marginalized black as well as female working in mm-hmm. a space where the majority of the leaders were white and male. I experienced yeah. both sexism and racism, and I always I developed like I said the skills to navigate those challenging spaces. Um, but that doesn't mean that I felt safe just because I had the skills to develop it. So when I was um, founding when Brown Girls Lead, I really wanted to be able to help other leaders coming behind me to mm-hmm. find a psychologically safe space, right? And I wanted to make something really clear because the name of the organization is When Brown Girls Lead. People often think that I only work with leaders of color. No, that's not true. Right. I, right. I have a, a passion for leaders of color because I know that we're underrepresented. I know that we are marginalized. However, I work with all school leaders that are aligned with the vision of my company. Well, and I think that that's what fosters inclusion and that equitable environment, right? You, yeah. you can't just work with one set of people. It has to be everyone in that community so that it's kind of through and through. I agree completely. And so- what is something that our listeners, you know, we love when we're able to kind of let them know that they can take action. What are some of the things as we are getting into this new school year um, that you can encourage our listeners to do, you know, as a parent, as an administrator themselves, as a teacher, what are the starting points for individuals? Yeah, I would say that individuals should start with assessing to what extent they're currently leading an anti-racist school environment, right? Mm -hmm. So I use the term anti-racist because it's been, there's a phrase that's been coined in that it's not enough to not be racist. One must be anti-racist, meaning that Mm -hmm. it's not enough to just sit back and say, well, I do not intentionally do negative things against people of color and black people specifically. I do not, let's, for example, I do not use the N word. I do not, you know, say unkind things, do unkind things. I don't support mm-hmm. other people who do those things. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a really relaxed approach. And mm-hmm. a one that someone that one can easily say, well, I'm not racist because I don't do these things. The next right. step is being anti-racist, meaning that you are intentionally coming against policies, procedures, beliefs that actually are racist. Right. And so you pick up your part in your role to say this policy is actually not beneficial for all young people. It's Mm. only beneficial for our white students or maybe our Asian students. We need to make sure that this is beneficial for our black and Latinx students as well. And that requires leaders, number one, understanding culture. But then number Mm -hmm. two, the first actionable step would be get to know the data. Right. Yeah, How right. do you know if you're currently leading an anti-racist school? You have to look at your data. So some example data points are, are your black children being suspended at a higher rate than your white children? Mm-hmm. Are your uh, white children overrepresented in honors and advanced placement classes? And if so, do black children even, are they even considered for honors and advanced placement classes? Do your black ch- children fail classes at a higher rate? It's all in the data. Right. Right. Um, right. Your children have lower attendance rates, like breaking down the data by race, gender, socioeconomic status. You begin to see the extent to which 
your black children are actually included in the space, uh, in the school environment. And in my work, I find that most leaders have a general understanding of the data, but the mm. to the weeds and really right. deep down in understanding the extent to which black children um, experience implicit bias in the school building, I, very few leaders have gotten into the weeds to that extent. Yeah, I don't think it's as deep of an understanding. I think most teachers, if you were to ask them or you were to give them this data, they probably wouldn't be surprised. But I don't think that they would necessarily know just the extent of how disproportionate it is. I mean, and I think so much of it is that inaction that you were saying. A lot of people think, well, I don't do these overt actions and I try to be equal to my students, but they're kind of turning a blind eye because they probably wouldn't be surprised about this data, but then they're not really looking into it and like, what can we do to change it? Exactly, exactly. And that is a necessary step because the systems that created these disparities were created intentionally. So we have to intentionally unlearn and uncreate them and recreate systems that are actually beneficial to all children. Mm-hmm. So I know if you like one thing we try to bring forward to like our listeners, which a lot of them are school personnel and they are not necessarily administrators. So they don't think that they have power. Right. But we know that most people have more power than they think. So if if I'm a teacher or I'm a speech therapist or even a parent and I'm wanting to sit there and take action and I'm not necessarily in a role of administration, what are some things that teachers and parents and other related staff members can do if they're maybe not aware of where this data is or how they can have access to it? And like, where do you go once you have the data? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that they can do is begin with the data that's in their locus of control. They Mm -hmm. can look at their grades. They can look at the comparison of positive parent phone calls versus negative parent phone calls. They can look at their behavior infractions, like the ones that they're sending to the dean or to administration. They can totally look at their individual data. Right. And once they look at their data, they can assess, well, are there disparities? Mm -hmm. And if there are disparities, why do those disparities exist? Right. And so this is the part where it's good to have an outside person, because there is a lot of context within the school building as to why something may exist. Right. Right. We can justify a lot of things. And. Not to say that those things you suggestify are not valuable and it might not be playing a part, but there's more times than often there's a deeper reason as to why. And if all of your data is saying that there's a disparity, there's likely some implicit bias playing Mm -hmm. out and one can take on the challenge of doing their own work in regards to implicit bias. So I'll give you guys an example of a school that I was working with last year. I did a professional development session on anti-racism for the entire staff, not just the leaders. And we were talking through kind of the behavior infraction. So in their particular school, uh, Black children were suspended at a significantly higher rate than their white peers. And so we walked through the data and we discussed like, how how did we get here? And so towards the end of the professional development, they were talking about actionable steps. And one thing that the teachers kind of came up with is 
when I am at that point where I've redirected the young people, I've asked them to stop behaving in a certain way, and I'm mm-hmm. about to give the infraction, I, as an adult, can take a breath, look around, yes. mm-hmm. see if I'm really seeing the actions of all children. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Nothing is lost. If you just take 30 seconds <laughs> before yeah. you right. the right. child, you just take 30 seconds and say, is the black child the only one that's misbehaving right now? Right. 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 It can be a huge change. And like I said, nothing is lost in that 30 seconds of you just taking a break to assess, fully assess the situation as opposed to acting on impulse. Which adults do all the time. Right. And there's so many reasons for that. And if there's one thing that I learned raising little people and all the parenting accounts that I follow, it's to regulate yourself first and in those 30 seconds you know kind of even just coming back to your body oh is my jaw clenched are my shoulders up and you know just you know start with yourself and then it's so much easier to kind of look up and just be like okay I've lost a little bit of the reins (laughs) like the whole class is like this right but I think that being able to stop and and focus on yourself because that's where the work even for the individual starts, right? But before you get into the data, like you said, before you kind of get into the, and I'm sure your work starts here as well, when you are presenting in front of these professionals, like you have to (laughs) self-assess. You have to kind of really do the work first. And I think that that has been lost on a lot of people. I think it's just something that they think that they can just, oh yeah, like I know, I know what it looks like. And I know, and it's like, that's really difficult because even if you live through it, it may be different for this particular child in this particular community, unless you came from that community, right? I think that we like to tell ourselves stories and if we can just stop and look around or just even check in with ourselves. I think that goes a long way for sure in this journey to being anti-racist. Absolutely. And that is one, as you were mentioning in regards to like doing the work as an individual, Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. has to be willing to take responsibility for the fact that we all bring biases into the classroom. Mm -hmm. Every Mm -hmm. last one of us, every last Mm -hmm. one of us. Mm -hmm. And so you are a person that is, you know, one of the most racist things that someone can say is, oh, I don't see color. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't see race. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Give me, but I'm mm-hmm. a black woman. So if you don't see right. race, it's me. <laughs> right. right, right, right. You so, don't, you're, you're literally saying you don't. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, you yeah. don't see me. Right. And so, and I think that, you know, there's, we are in a society right now where people feel most people, I would say the intention behind that is to say, well, I don't treat anybody differently based upon race, but we have to see individuals for who they are because our race is tied to our culture. Our culture is tied to our beliefs, our beliefs to our actions. Like we have to see people to understand who they are and how we can best serve them in the world of education. And, you know, we just fundamentally as humans, and I've said this a ton of times on the podcast, love to label we love to label, oh, yeah. right? We have our ID kids. We have our ED kids. We have our uh, specific learning disability kids. We have these kids over here. We have the homeless kids. And it's like, these are all like all special populations. <laughs> we yes. can have our children without homes. We can have our kiddos in the foster care system, but they can also be black. 
they can also be Asian. They can like, and to be able to really try to come from, and I feel like it was like pendulum swing, right? It was like, we were over categorizing and then it swung over to, well, I don't see color. I don't see that. And then it was like, no, okay, you guys, we got to get back to what the reality of the situation is. And I think that that's why it is really powerful for you. We're, we're all about the fidelity of the data as well. And these numbers are just like you had said, that first step. Okay, like, let's break it down. What does this actually mean? And I feel that, you know, with that, you also have to kind of look around like as an administrator, I would imagine and, and kind of call out, oh, we are all white men, or we are, all, you know, white women, you know, we, we, you need people from the community to be able to identify what those cultural ties are, you know, because if you, you don't know, you don't know, right? Is, is that something that you encourage as well as to really Absolutely. try and diversify? Oh, go ahead. Absolutely. I, but I think the value in what you just said is that calling on the community in order to call on a community, you have to value the community. Mm -hmm. See, people don't realize the extent to which these implicit biases turn um, play out. And I know this so well firsthand because of working in the school turnaround area. We're often going into areas that are underserved, right? And that people have built a a very negative perception of. And so when you go into these communities, there are assumptions about the community. There is an assumption that the young people are poor. There is an assumption that they're uneducated. There's an assumption that they are failing in some way, which is why the school is where the school is. Well, if we just pull back all of our assumptions, right? And just talk to people Mm -hmm. and listen to people, you may actually find that you're completely incorrect. And what I will, what I often people realize is that we actually have more in common than we do differences. Mm -hmm. So if we can learn to value communities and cultures outside of our own, that's where the gold is. And if if you don't mind for a second, I want to go back to something I said earlier around being anti-racist, where I mentioned that there must be intentionality around undoing the laws that got us here. And I mentioned that the the laws and the policies and procedures were created intentionally. I want to kind of give some examples of that, because as I'm reflecting and I'm talking, that might be either I wasn't clear enough or that might be a hard pill for some people to swallow. So you <laughs> right. Those, right. So, you know, the history of the law, you know, that at one point, black people were only considered three fifths of a person. You know, mm-hmm. that at one point women could not vote. You know, that black and white, the interracial marriage was illegal. Like if those laws were created intentionally, right. Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. laws coming from the federal government, they play out, that's the, like, like the government's like the macrocosm, and they play out in a micro way in our school buildings, mm-hmm. right? That's, the government sets the tone for the country. So how could we believe that we can be in a country where a Black person only be considered three-fifths of a person at one point, yet all of a sudden, because we had a Black president, everybody knows right. that Black right. people, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, come on. Right. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a long history. And so when we're thinking about, well, we can even like the hidden racism in curriculum, right? And that white suburban children are taught Mm -hmm. high level cognitive skills and are allowed the space and the freedom to learn freely versus 
poor black children are taught rote skills of just like note taking and they're really they're preparing black children for blue collar jobs and they're preparing white suburban children to be CEOs. Mm-hmm. Do we think that, that was a mistake? Mm-hmm. Right? quite intentional and it was stemming from the fact you know we have brown versus board of education right the court finally says oh okay yeah no we're we got to integrate and then it was just you know a way for these people to be funded to keep the patriarchy to keep you know racism where they wanted it and we see that even with the IQ testing for the testing of kiddos uh, to see whether or not they qualify for special education. And I think that once people recognize and acknowledge, then they can go, you know, to the understanding and to the real work of undoing, um, because it is a system set up to be racist. (laughs) And I think in going the step further of not just putting our head in the sand and saying, well, I don't do X, Y, Z. So I've done my part to know how can we shift to be creating action? You know, we try to call on parents a lot to take action in their school boards and go to school board meetings and participate in their schools and not just take action when something that they have a problem with pops up, but really taking Mm -hmm. action earlier and looking at how do our school districts handle, like, what are they doing to take action? Because I think it goes further than just the teachers and the administrators. If we are truly going to create these safe spaces and these unbiased spaces in our schools, it is going to take more action from families as well. And not just the black and brown and, you know, people of colors, families stepping up and saying, we want an unbiased education. Mm -hmm. It's going to stem also from the white families saying, we want an unbiased education system too. And that's going to take action and not just saying, well, I don't support, you know, we've had a lot of talks lately about book bans, right? And then in certain states like Florida, certain curriculums being put in place, right? And there are people who are stepping up to say, no, that's not what we want to see in our school libraries. But it needs to go further than that. We need more parents to get involved at, you know, the school and the district level to really look at what's happening from, you know, we have, you know, large places like Los Angeles, where you get the more suburban areas where a lot of the, you know, money is in the schools. And really, we have communities that aren't getting the funding that aren't getting the support that they need. And even smaller districts, we see that too. And I think, you know, obviously, mostly white children benefit from a lot of that. And the families don't really think much of it about how we can be more you know, integrating our schools and really supplying funding and resources to all our children, not certain demographics, but like that action is from everybody. Right. And so if a family is like wanting to get more involved in their school and they might think, okay, I do want to support my school and my school district, but like my child lives in a predominantly white school, like what can I do? What would you say to that parent? What would you say of like how they can take action and, and work towards more unbiased schools. Yeah, absolutely. So I would uh, encourage parents to get involved in the conversations. A lot of what you said, a parent can request a meeting with a teacher or administrator at any time that they want to. 
And when they have those meetings, ask questions, right? So ask about these data that we're talking about, ask those questions. What is the, what, what, you know, are Black children overrepresented in specialized services? Are white children overrepresented in honors and advanced placement? Are Black children suspended more than white children? And ask the school, well, like, what are you doing about it, right? Will the administrator mm-hmm. be frustrated? Absolutely. But who, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be blunt, but who cares? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that's a part of your job as an administrator. You, we come to work to serve the community. We come to work mm-hmm. to serve parents mm-hmm. and the kids. And trust me, if enough parents start asking questions, administrators mm-hmm. are going to have to respond. Yeah, they have to, exactly right. Exactly right. You're going to feel that pressure yeah. to respond. The board is going to have them respond. And that's how uniting, if there are disparities, first you want to get to the numbers, right? Because you don't want right. to kind of go in blazing and <laughs> the school is actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? Right. That's why you want to ask questions, ask for like what kind of work they're doing around anti-racism, DEI, ask what they're doing. If if you are the parent of a Black child, ask what they're doing to make your child feel more included, right? Like a parent can ask questions. Believe me, if there's anything that that administrator or teacher cannot answer due to, you know, legal reasons, federal reasons that we can't ask, we just can't divulge that kind of information, they'll say it. But there's nothing wrong with you asking. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Nadia, I would love to, a quick action for our listeners. Why don't you send us some questions? And Nadia, we would love to have you back on. So that we can kind of talk about more of these examples. I, I think that you were right on when you were like, let me just give an example, you know. And I think that that kind of helps with the inner work. But listeners, why don't you send us some questions for Nadia? I think we have a lot more that we could talk about, Nadia. So we might have to have you back on. Absolutely. Um, and listeners, please send us your questions. We could talk to Nadia all day, but we want to be mindful of your time, Nadia. And we so appreciate your thought, your work, and for coming onto our podcast to talk about this with us. Sure, of course. It was a pleasure. All right, listeners, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.